Welcome to My Life Chassidus Applied, episode 335. in Chanukah, fourth licht of Chanukah. This uh, program is dedicated by Schneer and Yehudas Hickson in honor of Mendel Jacobson. Friedrich Rebbe tells us, I'm Davzich Suher and was the licht lecht at Salem. We need to listen to what the flames tell us. The Chanukah Licht tell us a story. And part of our personalizing it, applying it to our lives, is exactly that, listening to their story. So we shall begin with that. As many years ago, in the mid-80s, so we're talking now, the 35 years ago approximately, when the, an ad was published, the New York Times and other newspapers, a full-page ad, Lessons from Hanukkah. I had the schus to prepare that ad in English, and the Rebbe actually edited it. I titled the ad, Whispering Flames, and telling, essentially, that message of the Friedrich Rebbe, Listen, we must listen to what the flames tell us, and hence whispering flames. And went on to um, lay out five main lessons that we learned from the flames. One is that just as the flame rises, we too have to always be rising. A second is that the different colors of the flames reflect the different hues and changes that happen in our lives, and they're all part of the narrative. The third message was that we light the flames in the evening at our doors facing outward to teach us that we need to illuminate the dark and that we increase and finally we increase each night by adding one first night, one flame, the second flame, a third flame, like Hillel says, teaching us that we need to always increase in our good activities. The Rebbe edited the Add quite extensively, and on the word whispering flames, the Rebbe wrote, It's not quiet, it's not a whisper, it's for the entire world. The mitzvah of Ne'er Chanukah is Pesumenisa, and the word whispering, as poetic as it may sound, nevertheless, it is essentially suggesting a certain type of privacy, secret whispering. So we changed it. I believe we wrote Once Upon a Flame or The Story of the Flames. The Story of the Flames we, we ended up writing. There were other edits, but I want to just touch upon that one for a moment. In a Sichen Tov Shinun, which would be the end of 1989, Chanukah Tov the Rebbe speaks why Chanukah is different than all other holidays. In what sense is it different? It's the only one where we al pesar mebachutz. All other holidays we celebrate indoors. The seder, of course, Purim the Sudha of Purim. Either in a shul or at home. Chanukah, we're told, light the the menorah at the door of your home, going facing outward, because Chanukah's fun, function, as Chassidus explains, why is the mitzvah? commemorated through flighting flames, why not through 
other ways, the main victory was the victory of the battle. That allowed them to win over the, the Greeks. Then they were able to then rededicate the Beis Amigdash and the Meneda, and light the Meneda anew with a pure crucible of oil. Because the because the, the Ikerness was in Ner Mitzvah That was the opposition of the Greek Syrian, Syrian Greeks. Not to kill the Jews, but to eliminate their connection to the divine element in Tater Mitzvahs. They had no problem with Teda as a book of wisdom, philosophy. No problem with mitzvahs as a moral code. But that it's your Teda, the sanctity of it. So the Mechama, the war, the victory, was over light, the idea of spiritual light, the divine spiritual light, which is symbolized by the Meneda. And their mitzvah of a Teda Eir. And hence, we light the Meneda. And because that is this victory, it's not a victory just indoors. It's the world should know. Persumanissa. The world should know that God gave this human race a Teda, a moral code. For the Jewish people, obviously, it's the Tayyag Mitzvahs and all that entails. For the non-Jewish world, it's the universal Noahide laws. But it's not just indoors. It's meant to publicize to the entire world why we're here and what is our purpose of existence. And hence, that wrote. The strong words, didn't just say outdoors, in your neighborhood, in your community. So the lesson is quite clear, my friends. The lesson of Hanukkah in this regard is that here we have a one Yom Tov a year where we light flames, and what do flames do? They illuminate. They illuminate their environment. They illuminate the dark. The menade in the base of Midrash was lit in the morning. Different opinions on the matter. <clears throat> but here it's written, when the sun sets, when it gets dark, both in time and in space. We light the menade in the evening, and at the door facing outward, emphasizing that our, our role and our responsibility is to illuminate everywhere we go, even the darkest corners of this world. So ask yourself the question, are you a illuminator? Are you a walking menator? You definitely have the Ner Hashem Nishma Sodom within you. The flame of God is the soul of a human being, but now it's time to spread that light. And that is by reaching out to every person you can speak to, even those that may not be in your inner circle, and speak to them. What does God want you for? What role do you play? What indispensable mission do you have in bringing light to the world? And light, as we know, one flame lights another flame, lights another flame, and it accumulates and can create a pandemic of goodness and kindness, this Hanukkah. So among the many lessons Hanukkah offers us, other ones I mentioned as well, which is Mylan Bekadish to grow, like the flame licks the air, the, the sky. We are transcendence, the different colors reflecting the different aspects of our lives and illuminating the dark, as we just discussed. So, with that, 
This week is also the week of Pashas Miketz. Briefly, Miketz is Ketz Som Lacheshech. It's a message of Hanukkah as well. The Shalom writes that the Yom Tevim, even the ones that came later, like Hanukkah, are also connected and hinted to in the Pasha. Ketz Som Lacheshech. Miketz Shnasayim Shana. This was after Yosef was in the darkest place in the dungeon, in prison. He finally, Ketz Som Lacheshech, is the end of that darkness, and a new stage begins, the stage of him becoming from the darkest, he became a melech, a Mishnah lamelech, as the Pasha relates. So Yosef teaches us in our own personal life, sometimes it may seem dark, it may seem hopeless, you may be at the, at the abyss, all is lost, and right from that darkness comes the greatest, that he re- reaches, not just he's freed, he becomes the second in command, and like he'll say later to his brothers, Lamichia, that's why God sent me, to bring life and sustenance to you, to the entire world. And that's what Yosef did. So the story of Miketz, just on a very basic level, is the story of all our lives. We all go through stages, and there are times it seems like it's dark, like it was right before Hanukkah, the nest of Hanukkah. They couldn't find even Pach Shem and Pach Echot Shem, they couldn't find even one crucible of oil for one day. Then they finally found that, Purity, Shem pure olive oil. And that had the miracle that it lit not just for one day, but it lit for, burned for eight days until they were able to procure new, fresh, pure oil. So the lesson is for all of us. Sometimes our darkness is subtle. Sometimes it's more blatant. No matter what situation we're in, that's the power of a flame. Yisuna er that from the darkness comes the strongest light. And even a small little flame automatically, naturally, without effort, dispels the darkness around it. Which tells us the power. You don't need to battle. Once you access the flame within you and the flame within others, it automatically has a superiority over darkness. In contrast, for example, to fire and water, where no, enough fire can evaporate large bodies of water. Enough water can extinguish the greatest fires. When it comes to light and darkness, as the Alter Rebbe explains in Perikid Beis and Tanya, like Chochmah and Sichlus, Shleim HaMelech compares, that the wisdom, the reflective divine soul, the wisdom of the reflective divine soul has an ability to automatically dispel the nonsense and the folly of the dark animal soul and its impulses. Okay. So, just a few announcements. It's always good to announce, for those that are here for the first time, I welcome you to this program. This is, as I pointed out, 335th program, ready in its seventh year. Never believed, none of us believed that it would continue on so long, but it's your questions and your listening, and your response, and your feedback that makes this, continues to make this happen. And of course, your support. It's a free program we depend on, and we rely on your financial support, as well as other moral support, and all forms of support. So please, as we are in Hanukkah Gelt, we are in the Hanukkah season, it's also the end of the calendar year, please support us, dedicate a program, several programs, and anything that you're capable of doing, Go to chsidasupply.com slash donate. 
And be happy also to read or announce any dedication to a loved one for a birthday, for a graduation, for a yard site, or any other way to honor a loved one and uh, a close one. Okay. This uh, site, chassidusapply.com, has a full array of resources, including all the previous episodes. I should mention that the, ep- the discussion on Hanukkah Miketz, because this is the seventh year, spoke about it almost every year. So I refer, cross-reference you to episodes 47 and 48, 93, 143, 192, 238, 288, and 289. As you'll see, it's around 50 weeks in between them because it's every year. That, there you'll also find a forum where you can designate, where you can ask any question and we will, of course, be addressing some of them soon in this program as well. Okay. With that, I want to just read feedback. Last week, we did a special episode at the request of high school students, particularly girl high school students, young women in high schools. It was called a special Chav Kislev uh, student edition. And they, uh, it was, we got many, many questions from students. We felt it was appropriate, especially in connection to Yutes and Chav Kislev, to address their and their particular questions, which are really relevant to all of us. So we got a lot of feedback. I'll just read one. Thank you so much for the segment that you did. We just played it for the girls, and they are very, very, very happy. Thank you for your efforts to making this happen. Please thank Rabbi Jacobson from all of us as well. Okay, very good. And I thank you because it's a two, it's a reciprocal relationship, a partnership, you can say. So in the spirit of going back to Hanukkah light, so the question came in, which I thought was very fitting, and, uh, <laughs> um, and then I read another question, which you'll see in a minute why I found amusing. We'll get to it shortly. In the Hanukkah period. With so much pain and darkness, how do you maintain a positive outlook? It's actually written directly to me, but it's really a question for all of us, obviously. And here's, hi, Rabbi Jacobson. Thank you for the amazing work which you do. You have really enhanced my life and I am sure the lives of so many others. I've, have, I've, I've listened to you on a regular basis for some years now and one theme I've noticed you mentioned throughout your different programs is that through your travels to many various places you constantly encounter people who live with pain, suffering and emotional and probably physical as well scars. How do you not become down when you see a world filled with such suffering? How are you able to have a mindset that we, have, that we live in a good world? Based off of everything I see and hear, my initial view of the world, on the world, is that it is a place inherently dark where people will automatically suffer in addition to the fact that if we look at history, we see a continuous story of terror such as world wars and the Holocaust. I have to really put an effort in order to convince myself that this world is actually a good place. But even then, I will then hear a handful of stories of people in pain and suffering and slowly, slowly revert to my initial view that this world is inherently dark, which I guess Hasidus does come to support, as it says toward the end of Perigvav and Tanya, quoting Priyat Chaim. 
tied into this question is that I've always wondered how the Rebbe says that this world is a garden. Being that the Rebbe said this, I know it is the truth. However, I can't say this, that this truly resonates with me. Thank you again for everything you do, and please continue with all the amazing things you do. Looking forward to hearing your unique and wise response to this. Thanks. I'm sure this question is on many people's minds many times, especially when there is, they're faced with some darkness. So I'll speak, uh, since you were candid, I shall, I shall also be candid. There's no question that when you look at the world, and you look at, situa- at life in general, you can always see it from two perspectives. You can see the dark, but you can also see the light. The real question is, what are you choosing to look at? And why are you choosing to look at it that way? To say there's no beauty in the world, even though we've seen a lot of suffering, is simply not correct. To say there's no suffering and darkness just because there is beauty is also incorrect. So how do you determine? Why do some people have a more rosy, uh, a, a, a rosy, a rosy colored look at things and others have less? Why do some people see the cup is half full and some see that the cup is half empty? Now you could say this is in essence another way of rephrasing and re- what Tanya says, that we have two voices in us. Never shabamis, never shalikis. And it plays itself out in many ways. And one way is, like we know in the chapters 26 and on, that you can look with eyes of, of depression and see the negative. And it demoralizes you. Or you can look with other set of eyes, with the neshama eyes, and you see the positive. And it's not that one is ignoring or denying the other. It, at the end of the day, it's how you look at existence. So on a personal note, the question I would break it into is philosophical and emotional. Philosophical, Chassidus makes it clear that the Tzimtzum Arishin, which is the mechanism and instrument that God uses to create existence by concealing his conscious presence, so in order for an independent reality to emerge, so we should have free will and be able to fulfill the ultimate purpose of existence is to make a home for the divine in this world, in this lowest of world, Tachtenim. As the Alter Rebbe explains in chapter 36 in Tanya, that that Tachtenim is Tachtenim in Helam Eriusbarach. Just like he says at the end of chapter 6 that you cited, in chapter 36 he says similar words, a world that's a double and amplified darkness, to the point that's filled with Sitra Achre, with negative forces. Using the words from Pedig Vav, Filled lame. It's a world filled with difficulties. The shame gave him by. The wicked dominate. To the point that they cry out, Aniva I and nothing else. Completely antithetical to God. But that is the kavana. So philosophically, as difficult as it is, this is the kavana, this is the purpose. The purpose is not the darkness, it's to transform the darkness. But I would suggest that you're probably asking me not the philosophical answer, the emotional answer. When you see anguish, when you see loss, when you see pain, when you see situations that are in, uh, uh, unfathomable, extremely painful to see, with all the kavonas that Rebbe would cry out so often. Okay, all the kavonas, you can all explain it with a seichel, but it hurts you personally. You empathize. You're compassionate. You know, Ad Mosei. Some people, some families, suffering terrible ways. 
Everybody has had some suffering in our history. So emotionally, it's a whole different story because a bleeding heart does not respond to a brilliant mind. So though it helps the academic, the cognitive approach, but at the end of the day, when you're experiencing a pain, all of us, as I recall, I remember when my father passed away or other pains that I've experienced personally, that Simpson addition is all good and I use it to explain it and I use it to explain it to myself, but there's something that still remains. Something that still remains impossible to answer. That's why we say, Vayidem, Aden, Aden was silent. The Rebbe's famous Sichem, Shleshim, 30 days after the Rebbe Tzachai Mushka passed away in Tavshim Ches, where he spoke why Moshe was so disturbed when he saw Tumas Mes, the impurity, the tox- toxins of death. Because after all, all the explanations, the heart cannot fathom, cannot relate to the disconnect. That's about death. But the truth is with all darkness, with all difficulties. So then I don't have a complete answer why some people are able to still see the positive. Because even when that emotional vacuum, that emotional abyss consumes you, you still somewhere inside you know that there's something. You may never understand it. And the way acknowledging that you don't understand it is perfectly fine. For me, it frees me when I acknowledge it because I'm not trying to be Try to explain something that's not explainable to a bleeding heart, to a, to a hurt person, to myself or to anyone. In a way, letting go allows some greater strength to come in. In the words of the Friedrich Rebbe, that this toy, this gun, can frighten someone that has one world and many gods, but not someone who has one god and many worlds, or two worlds. There's some deeper resilience, some deeper strength, and Hanukkah actually captures that. It was all hopeless, hopeless. And yet they found this one crucible of oil. What's one crucible already? It barely can burn for one day. But it doesn't matter. It's not quantity. It's quality. So I have seen also, as much pain as I've seen in my, in my life, and I by no means have seen what others have seen or experienced, but I also see an unbelievable power. The most refined people I know were the ones that suffered so greatly. They're able to find that pach shemon. Exodus, that's called Chochmeh, Sheben Nefesh. The Pach Shemen of that one crucible, that one flask of pure olive oil. And they were able to access it and become unbelievable type of human beings. So when you see all that and you acknowledge it, you make a choice. I would submit, and speak a little more analytically, that someone who grew up in a home where there was darkness, unfortunately, and the parents and the adults didn't know how to cope with it, it'll probably make it more difficult to cope. But when you see people who have had that strength of spirit and maintained their composure and able to grow through their suffering, that affects us. So often you can probably explain it by what influences we had in our lives. I thank God I've been around people, starting with the Rebbe, my parents, my father who suffered greatly, in many ways, as many did in the Soviet Union, lost his both his parents when he was before he was twenty years old. Seeing all that, and seeing how they built and they grew, and did not allow themselves to wallow in self pity, and used all their pain as energy to as catalyst for growth, no question shaped me, and many very many very well have been the contrib- most important contributing force to a positive outlook. Because it's not because I've suffered less, and I have suffered less than many. 
I've been fortunate, God, thank God. But I, but I see that people who have suffered, I see also people, it's not like, oh, if I suffered more, that's an excuse to give in. So these are some words, I'm sure there's more to be said. Be around people who've gone through dark situations and look at the light that they generated, that they created, new types of light. That, I think, is the best and most powerful lesson in life, is seeing people who've been there. And then, of course, with the garden, the Rebbe himself went through plenty of tzaras through his lifetime. The famous Sikhi Yushva Tavshin Lamed Beis, quoting the Bosa Lagani, which I don't know if you're alluding to that Sikha, but that's the theme, that the world is really beautiful garden, but it can be concealed to the point that it looks like a jungle. But in truth, is powerful light in there. And our job is to reveal the garden within ourselves and within each one of us the flower that's really there. Sometimes we forget. Sometimes it's concealed. But we have the ability to do so. And being around people who do so and are committed to doing so gives us strength as well. So much more can be said, but I suffice it for now. This is Hanukkah session here, Hanukkah tonight and this week. So it's a very important theme. And perhaps Hanukkah ultimately teaches us this. Not perhaps, for sure. This is what Hanukkah teaches us in the words of the Ramban, Nachmanides, in Pasha Ba'alesha, the Meneda, which Hanukkah came to rededicate, ultimately was the Besamidish was destroyed and the Ner Tamid, that the eternal flame, was extinguished, the Gashmis. But these flames, these flames that we look at, that are burning in each home and in shuls, in millions of homes and millions of communities, in many of communities. They went through all the darkness, they're still burning. So Hanukkah has that message of a type of undefeatable, indestructible power of light, not just to dispel darkness, but to be eternal. And that's what we commit to, and that's what continues to give us strength. And at the end of the day, as I've heard some people who suffered, they said, and what choice did I have? I was either going to sink or dig deeper, and I was not going to sink. Not for me, not for my family, not for my parents, not for my grandparents, and not for all those that suffered. It would be a disgrace, as one person once told me. It would be an absolute disgrace and humiliation and letdown to those that suffered by, by saying, oh, I'm going to give in to suffering. And even in psychological terms, Viktor Frankl developed this into logotherapy, an entire psychological approach, man's search for meaning, that those that have suffered but they had meaning were able to get through it in some stronger way. Okay. So from a, I guess, a more serious note, let's move to the next question. It's also Hanukkah related. And here's how it goes. Can a chassid eat jelly donuts on Hanukkah? <laughs> it just makes me smile. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, thank you so much for your wonderful episodes which really helped me apply chassidus to my life. I'm a Baal Tshuva studying in yeshiva for almost two years now. Now comes Hanukkah. I just spent a year going through Tanya with Alter Rebbe teaches us in Parochim 7 and 8 that Klippas Nega not use l'shem shamayim, which means neutral items that are not used for the sake of heaven, becomes a part of shalosh klipas atmeis, becomes a part of shalosh klipas atmeis, which is negative energies, 
anti-divine energy. Patek 14 explains who the Baini needs to emulate the tzaddik, and despite evil, tivus, including food, having desires, including food, he has to control his thought, speech, and action, and not, and not indulge in them. And so many other places in Chassidus where the message is that indulgence in Gashmis is a stira teruchnis. Indulgence in the physical contradicts and negates the spiritual. Now it's Hanukkah and the yeshiva put out custard and jelly donuts and I see almost everyone fressing away. I'm reading this uncensored. So you can enjoy it as I am. I'm refraining and telling myself the truth. The fat, oily, sugary donuts will in no way help my Avedis Hashem. On the contrary, they'll make me tired, more grub, more crass, and I'll learn less, sleep more, and be more tired. Mela Shabbos, you can argue a taste for Enoch Shabbos, for the pleasure of Shabbos. And even the Chesidim are noyag not to be makbir on Shabbos indulgence. Chesidim also careful not to be indulged on Shabbos as well. As I watch everyone fresh, my inner voice is telling me no. It's better to hold back so I can learn my Morim and Sikhs about Hanukkah and connect to Hashem through davening and learning Gemara. Teira and davening is being, is be'ena reich better than the donut. Is infinitely better than the donut. Am I not correct? Isn't that what Chassidus teaches and expects of Chassidim? If so, why does my yeshiva serve donuts and why does it seem like everyone is eating them like Chassidus is just a non-applicable philosophy? I just heard the Mashpia Fabreng last week and tell the story of Aristotle, who would teach one thing and was caught doing the opposite in private. And everyone laughed about how silly he was. I am very non judgmental of others and don't look down, Chazrashalom, God forbid. I'm just looking for the ultimate truth and ultimate application of Chsidis. And I'm asking about myself to see if I'm understanding correctly. Who is off, me or everyone else? And if I'm right, why does it seem like almost everyone else fresses away in public without embarrassment? Thank you in advance for clarifying my perplexity on to what is the proper approach that Chassidus demands. Okay, I know I said earlier that this was amusing. I was saying that also somewhat tongue-in-cheek. Obviously, this is an important topic. I just found the context to be somewhat amusing with the donuts which is really as an example for many other things that people indulge in. So let's just talk about this straight without, uh, on a serious note. Obviously that's the case. Whether it's donuts or any type of indulgence. The famous uh, marshal, when the, the same famous scene where the Baal Shem Tov shows his students a chassid sitting and eating chant on Shabbos, and he says it's an ox in Ashtraimel, an ox in Ashtraimel eating chant. Siddim said, where do we see that? And then he looked, they looked, and the Baal Shem to show them. All of us, and I'm not going to suggest you as well, the writer of this, have these inconsistencies. It's part of our lives. It's not a justification. Part of our lives. We learn one thing, and it's not always easy to apply it. I mentioned before about darkness. We can understand the concept, and then application is a whole different story. The Gemara, the Chassidim cites a Gemara, the Ganav, before he goes out to steal, he asks God to help. Can you imagine that insanity? So dissonance. We're all ha- we all experience dissonance, which is an inconsistency between what you believe, your ideals, and your actions. Perhaps on Hanukkah, it's very boilet, very apparent, and very uh, glaring. 
So, of course, I agree with you, and that's not even a question. Just open a tiny, he says clearly how one is supposed to eat. L'shem shamayim. Now, if you have someone eating a donut, forget about a donut. And what happens if it's not a donut and they're eating a piece of steak? Or they're eating a piece of fish? Or a salad? And they're indulging? It's only a donut? So maybe a donut, so to speak, becomes more of a symbolic element here. Because a donut may not be healthy. And just how people suddenly jump on it as if it's like a rarity. I understand that. But the issue, as he says in Tanya, is any type of engagement in the Yoni Rishus, which are, are permissible things, but have to be done the Shem Shemayim. So the answer is our Mashbim and ourselves, taking Chesidus seriously, have to realize that every moment of your life, 24-7, God is watching you. Are you using all your opportunities, all your involvements, including your eating, and your sleeping, and your walking, and your talking, and your doing business, L'shem Shemayim. So, I've, I mean, obviously I agree with everything you've written here. Practically speaking, what can you and I do? We can be living examples. We can talk about it. I would, you said non-judgmental, stay away from that, because that will just create more conflict. And people will say, okay, you, and what about you? You think you're consistent in every area? Etc., etc., so I think we have to have that, Adam. The element that people will say, well, be a little, you know, chill out. Be a little more light about this. There's an element, there's a truth to that as well. It doesn't take away what he says in Tanya. Look how the Rebbe's intensity was. And yet there are moments of levity. You know, someone wants to have a donut. It's kosher donut. Let him make a brach, let him enjoy it. Children like it. So to, you have to also know how to do this in a way that has a certain lightness of spirit. You teach children to do things l'shem shemayim, but they will enjoy an ice cream. And they will enjoy a jelly donut. Or they will enjoy some other delights. And sometimes celebrating a yomtiv, this is my second point I'm making, includes, even in the terms, remember some adults are like children. A jelly donut is like a child, like a five-year-old. Like my grandson, I gave him a box of donuts. So he just loved it. Is it all purely for the divine purpose? But there's also the idea of a Jewish child, boy or girl, Having certain, enjoying, saying Hanukkah, they remember good memories of Hanukkah, sometimes associated with physical matters. And the truth is, as the Rebbe explains, the truth is the sweetness in candies or in jelly donuts evolves from the sweetness in ruchnis. But this child, or the adult, an adult in the shape of a child, meaning he's a, a, a child, I should say, in the shape of an adult, an adult who has, is, is still on a, let's call it, I don't say immature, but he's, he's enjoying the truth is within it lies deeper power and hopefully he'll learn and learn about the divine sparks and learn that the real gishmak of a jelly donut or for that matter any other donut or other delights really comes from a ruchnizdika place. As the Baal Shem Tov says, that's the neshama is craving the spark in there. That's why you enjoy that particular food. So I think we need to keep these two things in balance and understand them both and that really helps navigate in a proper way without also coming down heavy on yourself or on others. We grow toward it. Can all of us eat the Shem Shemayim, those sparks? You step, step step by step. Even speaking about it right now, next time you have a donut, think about it. Think, you know, it's interesting. Why do I enjoy this donut? The truth is because your Nisham has something that it relates to. In the physical sweetness lies really spiritual sweetness. Okay. Now this relates, this comes to another question that followed as well, but this is a topic I've spoken about, so I'm going to just read the question 
But then I'll refer you to where I've spoken about it with a beautiful marshal of the Barshamtav that explains this. Why is Judaism so obsessed with food? Our religion seems to revolve around food. If there's a bris, bar mitzvah, wedding, yardside, chag, and Shabbos, food is just around. I recently was speaking to someone who works at a hospital for disordered eating and is not of the Jewish faith. Asked me, 98% of the children and patients I work with are all Jewish. What goes on in your religion? I answered, possibly, as grandchildren of Holocaust survivors, something weird with food emerged. But truthfully, I wonder. Food plays a huge role in our religion, a memory associated with even holidays and such. What does the Torah Chassidus talk about eating in general and how to eat? And how to eat. In many instances, I find we throw away and waste a lot of food. And in general, there isn't a conversation about after the Chagim where you can hear someone complaining they over- overate during Chag and feel sick. This doesn't seem very holy or the way things were intended. Please advise how should one eat? Why is food so vital in every aspect of a religion? How can one not overeat in this religion? So, very similar to the context of what we just discussed, I will just add the powerful Moshal of the Baal Shem Tov, that I want to go over, it's in episodes 89, and just a few weeks ago, 332, where he gives the Moshal of the king who sends away his son to a distant land, and the son receives a letter from the king several times a year and wants to celebrate, but no one will appreciate it, so he throws a party. People eat, I'm telling it very briefly, and people eat and drink and marry, celebrate. They're celebrating because they got free cocktails, free f- drinks, free food. He's celebrating because he received a letter from his father. The Nefesh Abamis does not appreciate Ruchni's Dika messages. So the only way to tell it in a way that it should cooperate is by saying, you know, Shabbos is coming, Yontav is coming, here are some special foods. As I said, within that lies deeper reason. But that's the way, in the sense that you can convince the Nefesh Abamis, the animal soul, to go along with you. Yaakov dressing in the garments of Esau. It's a very powerful muscle because it tells you that this whole physical world and everything that we satisfies it with, and we're talking now in forms that are per- permit- permitted, not prohibited, God forbid, is all the vushim garments of deeper divine sparks. So sometimes we need to convince the animal soul, just like we tell a child, here, here's a prize. If you learn Teda. What you're learning Teda because it's Hashem's Teda. But that's the way Hashem made it. The Rebbe has a powerful sikhir where he talks about that we, when we, and I'm Firinish, when you try, bring a child into school, you throw candies. You say, Malach Machol is throwing the candies. The Rebbe says, You're starting the education of a child with a lie? We know it's not Malach Machol, the parents are throwing the candies. And the Rebbe explained, No, the parents are a shliach of Malach Machol, and the candies are a shliach or a levush, a keli, for mesikus ruchnius, for spiritual, spirit, for spiritual sweetness. But right now, we don't yet know how to experience the spiritual. So like a marshal, you give an example in terms of the student, because right now, that's what the student can relate to. That's the bigger understanding of food. Now, of course, the goal is not the food. The goal is the message, the divine message within it. And that's what we need to work on. I don't want to repeat what I said before, but essentially, the gist of it is we teach people that it's not the food. It's the... It's Mitzvah Pi Hashem Yechiyahad. 
not on bread alone, but on the spark, the divine words, the divine expression within those foods. And that's the attitude. Now again, we have to do it step by step in a paced and regulated way because not everybody can jump from completely shalei l'shma to l'shma. So you have to begin where a person can begin. Eat a meal, understand the sensitivity necessary, that the meal is God's gift to you, it has divine sparks, you make a bracha, you're drawing down the divine energy, you use the strength from that food for something positive. We can be trained and we can train ourselves and others in that direction. Okay. A completely different uh, gist, a different uh, track. This is connected to the Chol Chedesh Kislev. So someone's asking, how can we take on and maintain so many resolutions? Dear Rabbi Jacobson, when learning the Sikhs of the Rebbe about the Chesidish Yemi de Pagre, these special days, especially in the Chedesh Kislev, we have many special days, the Rebbe always mentions that we have to take on Hachlotis, resolutions. In the month of Kislev, we Baruch Hashem have so many Chesidish Yemi de Pagre. How is it possible to take, on, to take on so many resolutions in such a short time and maintain them all, keep them all? I think I go back, maybe this is just a recurring theme, a recurrent, a recurring theme that we have to always remember. When you learn Chassidus, and the Rebbe Sichus included, the standards are tremendously high. You ever learn about Yehudi law, Yehudi Tata, Das Elyon, Das Tachten, how to look at the world through the eyes of God, these are levels where you could say, one second, I barely can get out of my own selfish needs and my own selfish temptations. You're telling me to the highest levels. The Rebbe once said in the Fabreng, and I believe it was Yutas Kisl of Tovshin Tazayin, 1956, that would be, Yutas Kisl, no, 1955. He said, we know the vort of the Alter Rebbe that Samach Tzaddik brings in a Sheri Shemitzah Satfila. It's a Meredika vort. The Rebbe says, the Alter Rebbe said on the Pesach, Mili b'shemayim, ki im chalei chafatzti. Ich will nicht dein Ganeiden, dein Ganeiden atachten, ich will nicht dein Ganeiden elion, ich will nicht dein elam haba, ich will dich alein, imcha lei chafatzti. Nothing, only you. Nothing but you. It's like a high level. The Alter Rebbe, the Rebbe says, understood what Ganeiden atachten is. He understood what Ganeiden elion is, elam haba. For us, Ganeiden Tachten is a quite a powerful level. So why would we be told such high aspirations that most of us were far, far beyond that? Meaning, in the, in the other extreme. And the Rebbe said these words, This is what we have trained. This is how we were educated. To reach for the highest. The Alter Rebbe once said, the Chassidus teaches how great you can, how small you are and how great you can become. Does it mean you're going to be there? Does it mean you're there? Of course not. At this point. But can you aspire? Of course, that's how we aspire. We say every day, several times. With all your might, your more than you did yesterday. More than your regular routine, the fixed patterns and routines. That's Zusha. Cried, why am I not living up to what Zusha is capable, not what someone else is capable? So, learning these levels are all really meant on a very practical level relative to you. Grow toward that. We all can find Bezoid Ampin in some subtle way, a microcosmic way, 
these levels. So the answer with the resolution is the same thing. Do your best. You take on resolutions. The Rebbe always feels, and Chassidus and Teira demands and expects of us that we have much more potential than you think you have. So even though you may say, I can't really do more, I've done so much, who determines that? How do you know what potential you have? You see, when we're pressured, we suddenly access resources we didn't even know were there. So the resolution should be taken, every person according to their level, and you do your best to fulfilling them. There may be lapses, there may be setbacks, but you still do not give up on the resolution. And if you're really committed, there's no question you can do everything that you resolve to do. You see it with people, God forbid, in emergencies, suddenly they have time, suddenly they have energy, because when it's necessary, there are deeper strings that we, all of us carry within us. And remember, the neshama has an infinite amount of strength from God. So again, this has to be measured according to where we are, to be somewhat, I don't say the word realistic is a broad word, realistic in the sense, talk to mashpia, see what you're capable of, but there's always more than you think you have, there's always more that you can do. Okay. Now, of course, we cannot get away from COVID, the pandemic, this new, new surge, this new uptick, whatever you want to call it, affecting people, unfortunately. So it's not an illusion. And we need to be careful and continue the guidelines. So questions keep coming in on this topic. And even though I believe I've addressed many angles, I still feel the need because it's so timely and so relevant and literally matters of Pekoach Nefesh to not ignore the questions and continue the message. As long as it's going on, we need to remind ourselves what the Tater says, what Chassidus says. And so I will read a few questions in this regard. There are many more. Can't read them all. There's just too many. But I think I'm covering the spectrum. What should, what should our attitude be to the COVID vaccine? So vaccine was just approved, literally. I believe Erev Shabbos. Um, so that's the question. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, question regarding the upcoming COVID vaccine. I'm a parent of a family that follows mainstream as directed by our doctor, we give our kids the full vaccination schedule. I never even thought about it. Once in a while, my wife brings up things she hears that sound ludicrous, but we never paid any attention to conspiracies, so we never looked into it. That is until 2020 came around and was going on in the name of science, quote-unquote. This opened our eyes and ears in making me rethink a lot, rethink a lot especially about the leaders of our health departments. Interests, political, our health department's interests, political, monetary, self-interest. I took a deep dive, and I'm leaning, learning about the speed at which this vaccine is being produced. We are in a bioterrorist threat, so the producers of the, vac- of the vaccine will have zero liability. I thought this was made up, but I checked it out. It's scary true. February 4th, 2020, in the federal docket under the PREP Act, zero liability. And he gives me a, uh, the writer gives me a, uh, gives us a link. If anyone's interested in the link, just send us in the form your email address, and I'll be happy to share it with you. So it's a link, uh, Federal Register, whole thing about declaration under the Public Readiness and Emergency Preparedness Act for medical countermeasures. Okay. They barely know the effects of this deadly virus, yet they have the cure. 
The speed in which this is coming out is unsettling. If the makers won't be held accountable, I can't shake the thought of why should I be taking it. I don't want to be a guinea pig, yet at the same time I don't want to diverge from the middle path. More and more I'm losing faith in the system and need to figure out our next move. I don't want to do something foolish either way. If you can shed some light, that would be greatly appreciated. With much love, a concerned parent. Look, the Ebishter knew when he knew something we don't know when he said, they've given the permission to the healer to heal. Healers are human beings. They're doctors. They can have agendas. They can have monetary interests. They can have other things. They can have a lot of, um, a lot of, um, uh, un, un, uh, what's the word I want to use? Insidious or, uh, or um, nefarious uh, uh, objectives. That's why the Torah tells us that if you have any questions, go to another doctor. The Rebbe says, if two, two doctors disagree, go to a third and do the majority. To suddenly take medicine in our own hands to determine that a vaccine is good or not good also puts the risk the other way around. And I've gotten letters that speak the exact opposite. What happens if a person is lying on their deathbed? And there are people I personally know that are. What happens if a person is very in a very fragile or very vulnerable state? Should they not take the vaccine? It may save them. Do we wait till it's too late? I mean, many people have taken things that, uh, you know, would not necessarily was the right thing to do. And I, again, I'm not going to pass in here as a doctor. I think when you're dealing with matters that are life and death of this nature, and we all know that the odds are most people are, will be either asymptomatic or won't be affected strongly by it. But there are people that are. So are you and I going to take responsibility and say don't take a vaccine? Now, is everybody in on the conspiracy, the FDA, Pfizer, the different labs, the different companies? Everything is possible. But then you could say that about every medicine. Do you know how much money is made by the pharmaceutical companies? So we have to be prudent. And yes, there's a middle road, which means you listen to doctors. You have questions, go to others. Unfortunately, what's happened is that people have created an alternative medical approach. Based on what? Now, you can always find someone. They're always, there's all kinds. They're quacks. And there are even legitimate alternative medicines. I'm not denying that. But how do you make a decision according to Taylor? So the Rebbe understood this, whether it was about vaccinations or about antibiotics or other different medicines, and gave guidelines. We spoke about this a while back, and I still maintain we have to go with Taylor, with professionals, with your mashpia, and do your due diligence. But I would not be avoid. I would avoid coming to any conclusions one way or the other because, for all you know, the vaccines are actually good vaccines. You know, may it affect some people one way, maybe other people a different way. Absolutely, I'm sure that some vaccines are not going to help everybody. So you have to take all that into account. Next question, in this regard, last night I was at a Fabrengen where people were completely re- reckless and, reg- and disregarding any type of precautions, masks, a lot of food, as if it was pre-COVID. I was shocked to see this. And though I know that, yes, that many people have had COVID and are now have antibodies, but we still have doctors and rabbis and professionals who are giving us guidelines. And I see people 
including those that a few months ago were yelling about precautions, now are completely not. So what's going on here? In our soul, we keep to the guidelines, we're very strict. We maybe err on the side of caution, but we're at least taking this thing seriously. So I repeat again, I don't agree with that type of behavior, the reckless behavior. Will I call it reckless? Everybody has to make their own choices. So many of us just don't go to different events, and that's your choice, and it's a perfectly legitimate choice. What can be done about this? If they follow the Torah, there's a Torah. There's halachas about this. There's rabbis. There's doctors. Can they make mistakes? Absolutely. But we're living in a sensitive time, and for some people, this is pekuach nefesh. And for all of us, we don't know who's going to be struck, God forbid, and what effect it's going to have on them. So I don't understand at all why people are being reckless. They think it's just like gone. You know, I've had it. I have the antibodies. But I'm still very careful. I'm a public person. So it's also not just Chil Hashem. It's also what I do, people see and talk about. And it's not about my impression. It's more to be prudent. And I know you have to lay low. Like I tell people, yellow light, proceed with caution. And you have to make discretionary choices. And sometimes you may make the right choice, maybe you may not the right choice, but at least there's thought about it. This type of thoughtlessness, mindlessness, is not healthy. And it's not a good example of how a Taylor Jew, a Chassidish Jew, should be behaving. And another question which was similar, let me just read it already since I'm on it. I have a question that is really bothering me. After Purim, Everything shut down. All the rabbis came out and told everyone to stay home and not to go to shul or mix in crowds. Time passed and suddenly everyone in every shul is open with barely any masks. How do all these people all know that now it is okay to go out? In the beginning there were letters from the rabbis, but now I don't see letters from rabbis that it's all over. Did I miss something? Is the law of to protect your health not applying anymore? Was it all a mistake? Can we just go back to normal now? I see old and young rabbis in New York and Florida going around in crowded places. People say that it was all a big mistake and no one really died from COVID. I really want to know what to do now. We have not been, growing to sh- we have not been going to shul in months and we feel like we are, the, we are the only ones who didn't get the secret message. Well, i just repeating what I said before. You have to make decisions based on talking to experts, to Torah people, to mashpim. I'm not going to say you're wrong and everybody else is, you're right and everybody else is wrong or everybody else is wrong and you're right. There's a middle ground to everything. And I think taking a balanced approach will be the most helpful. No, it's not gone. I personally know people that are struggling for their lives, so it's not gone. Are there plenty of other nefarious elements at work? Yes, there are. But that's why we have a Teda, Teda Schaim, Teda Eir that illuminates and helps us find clarity. And the Ebrister will protect those that follow his guidelines. That's what we need to go with. What else do we have to, to, to turn to? Create our own approach. It's not the way the Torah tells us to be. Okay. Now, of course, another topic that seems to one be one that just won't go away, which is Trump or Biden. Yep, believe it or not, well, I'm sure you believe it, if the topic doesn't go away, still out there and um, so what I'm going to do let me just see time wise where we are here 
Yeah, is there a double standard when it comes to discussing Trump and Biden? So I have two rather long, long letters written to me, and I felt that I want to read them just to get it out there. And again, I keep getting both opposites. Some people accusing me of being too pro-Trump. Some accusing me to be pro-Biden. Well, you know what? I told you I'm pro-God and pro-Tater and pro-Chassidus and pro-Derebbe. And, uh, and that's all that drives me from my point of view. I have no political agenda here. In case you're wondering, I'm not running for president. I'm not in the Republican or Democrat. I look at it all from the perspective of what the Tater would be the best type of leader that will live up to the standards and objectives of this country, which are aligned to the standards and objectives of Tater, as the Rebbe told us many times. So that just states that. So as far as uh, the Trump and Biden thing, so let me read, let me read this question, this uh, comment. There's no equivalent. You spoke about this topic, Rabbi Jacobson, several times, and you made different equivalencies. And I want to say there's no equivalent between the, uh, the, up, the uproar over the 2016 election, which was an adult tantrum in response to the Electoral College's procedures, and the 2020 election, which there is proven fraud and various kinds of illegal votes being counted. Well, before I continue even, this proven fraud, I am not for or against it. If it's proven, bring it to the courts. It, it can, is it possible that this whole thing was fraud? Everything is possible. But I don't know what recourse to take here unless everybody's going to yell. They'll say this is fraud. The other ones will say, no, it was a legitimate election. I find that people's positions were determined before the election and remain so afterwards. I don't think anybody's changed their mind. And you have to deal with the realities on the ground. And it may very well be that the Democrats outmaneuver the Republicans. And that's what we're going to have to live with. For those that have an issue with that, you know what? There were many people who did not want Trump in. And they had to live with it. I'm not trying to compare the two. I have my thoughts on the matter. But in this regard, to say one is proven, not proven. No, the, Mr. Trump, President Trump won the election fair and square four years ago. Did Biden rear fair and square? Some are saying no, some are saying yes. I can't tell you conclusions. I wasn't there. You know, right now the fact of the matter is that it looks like he's going to be the next president. And uh, yes, there'll be people screaming conspiracies for the next four years. But that's where the pieces seem to be falling. And Hashem ultimately will be the one that runs the show. And I think we need to accept and recognize that. So someone writes the following. Dear Rabbi Jacobs, I've been listening to your podcast for years. And I have tremendous respect for you. Sometimes I disagree with some of your opinions. But I see you as my teacher and mentor in many, many ways. Today I have very troubling questions regarding the state of our country. Let me say from the outset that my political leanings are more liberal than conservative, primarily in the politics of the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. I'm not an extremist and don't suffer easily the extremes on either side. I study... I study the policies without demonizing either side for seemingly extreme issues. For example, I strongly support more funding for social services for crime prevention, programs for youth, etc., while firmly supporting law enforcement. I strongly support legal immigration while fully supporting our vision as America being the refuge for anyone. I've experienced that witnessed <coughs> excuse me, the disparity in opportunities in different populations, I most certainly won't support any criminal activity. I don't think climate change is a hoax. I come from a family of scientists. I respect science. I'm also born and bred into a Lubavitcher family. This is just to give you a bit of insight into where I'm coming from. 
This is what concerns me today. Our country has never been more divided. And the ugly rhetoric has deeply ingrained itself into our firm, firm community as well. It's also abundantly clear that while that living in Crown Heights, I cannot openly express my views. After the 2016 elections, in which I had tremendous misgivings about the candidates, but decided to go with the flow of my community and against my gut and better judgment voted for Trump, I watched a president whose character became more and more apparent as being completely self-serving in every way. I watched a president divide a country by his rhetoric and, and some of his uglier policies. I watched as my community idolized, a song was created for him, a man whose moral compass was depravity was lauded as being honest and authentic. I watched my own community just dismiss his low-life behavior as if it didn't matter at all. Yes, I fully appreciate his friendship to Israel, and yes, I am deeply grateful for his giving Sholem Mordechai his freedom. I don't dismiss that. But I have great trouble reconciling his own ethical compass with the values that I live by. I'm going on too long. I don't mean this to be a, treat a treatise, treatise on why I didn't vote for Trump again. My question is this. Despite everything we all know as Hashem's will, I'm sorry, despite everything we all know about him in 2016, you, among many others, of those I look up to, kept lauding his surprising victory as Hashem's will, to put it very simply. There was no question then, at least none that I heard, that perhaps the electoral process wasn't entirely kosher. There was no wondering what comes next. And yet this time, in your lecture just last night, this was a few weeks ago, you spoke of this period of time as being weird and unsettled. Why, Rabbi Jacobs? Why are you not now telling your listeners what you told them four years ago? that this is exactly what Hashem wants. Yes, you did speak of ultimately Hashem running things, but your tone was very different last night from your tone four years ago. And this troubles me greatly. Not only personally, but in your very response, you are contributing to the undermining of our electoral process against all those who have come out and said that there is no evidence that the integrity of this election was any less than any before. Here in Crown Heights, it is dangerous to say that the election was by all accounts who are credible. A fair election here in Crown Heights is almost mistrust almost complete mistrust of the media, the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN, MSNBC. Yes, all left-leaning. But your words contribute to the distrust and rampant on my Facebook and WhatsApp groups, mostly all Lubavitch's, are the countless conspiracy theories, the evidence less assertions, less assertions of fraud. Are those to be trusted more? Okay, he quotes a few other names of rabbis, which I'm not going to read. This rabbi, another rabbi, and yourself, all very learned whom I've trusted. Not one of you has said the same words after this election as you said last time. It's as if Hashem's Russian was his when it agreed with yours. And now that the president-elect is not the one prophesies, no, not you in this area, then Hashem's Russian is somehow not so obvious. One other issue I'd appreciate your perspective on, why do you think that over 80% of Orthodox voted Trump, but over 70% of modern Orthodox voted against him? The reason I hear most often here is Trump's friendship with Israel. But aren't the modern Orthodox community at least as Zionist as we are? In fact, they are more so. Most of them have make, are making Aliyah at a very, very high, as a very, very high value. I'm curious as to your perspective on this. I must say that all of this is not just about politics. I'm deeply troubled and confused about the integrity of everything. I learn as I, as I see much I can't reconcile. I sign this with great respect. Well, let me say this. The reason I read this whole letter, which I'm sure is going to be disturbing to quite a few listeners, because it's pretty obvious that this person, as much as they're saying 
that they're neutral and middle and uh, and uh, and so on. I mean, let's say that leaning toward Democrat, but it's pretty strong. To me, it's pretty extreme, because the mere fact that, um, and I'm not defensive at all about this, the mere fact that these accusations are being hurled is, uh, I, I don't understand. Did you come out then, four years ago, when the, all the Democrats and the liberals were saying that the whole, that was Russian collusion? You know, if you were on the record and you decried that as much as you're decrying now, I would then say, okay, you're at least objective. I'm not sure where you're coming from, and I will say the following. I state it again for the record. God runs the show, correct. Um, why would I support Trump more than Biden? It has nothing to do with personality. It's to do with policies. It's to do with policies. I mean, to me, Trump, Biden, Obama, Bill Clinton, go all the way back to JFK, who are all I know, they're all lowlifes from my point of view. I'm not saying for sure they are or they're not. So to make a statement like you're making, was JFK a lowlife? We know today things that then was all concealed because the media didn't intervene. Who's a lowlife? Who's not a lowlife? I'm not going to come out and make such statements. I never did, not about any president. I always looked at it, what are they doing for the world, for moral values, for Jews, for Israel, and so on and so forth. And I think that when I hear a voice like yours, it just rubs me the wrong way, simply because it's just another political one. You're saying it's more than politics? You can say that, but I don't have any politics. I'm not addressing it all. For example, Mr. Trump, did he do anything for the Middle East, the peace agreements with the different countries? Was that a good thing? Why is that being ignored? And I'm not saying it to be pro-him. I have no problem if someone has something against his policies. Come out against it. But I don't want to be pulled into this. And the reason I read it was because I wanted people to hear what kind of letters I'm receiving. So you should feel a little how in my shoes. Maybe you'll have some empathy for me. Not that I need empathy here. You know, I feel pretty strong about, um, let's see here. Should I? Um, I feel pretty strong about my position here because my position is not based on any politics at all. And that's that. Um, I think that people got caught up with this pro and anti-Trump rhetoric and it's not something I want to engage in. But I'm reading it because of these reasons I just mentioned. And then I have the exact opposite letter which not, time has run out, so I can't read it right now, that says the exact opposite. How could you not go to war against Biden and the Democrat liberals and the, especially the progressives that are coming to destroy this country? So there you have. Who am I supposed to say is more correct? I think everybody's got some points of truth, but also some, exagger- excuse me, some exaggerations and some points of untruths. Buying again into the rhetoric. When I hear these things, you know, I mean, I, I, I just, I've been too around too much to be able to really take seriously all these accusations. I think let's all rise above it and look for what God wants us to achieve and accomplish. And I say exactly what I said four years ago. Whoever is the leader is Lev Lach Melachim Besonim Biyad Hashem. God will hopefully guide that person, will guide that person. That person should hopefully be a keli to receive and to do what God wants that leader to achieve in this in his term. And I say exactly the same thing as I said then. And that's that. Okay. What else do we have here? Let me just see my schedule here. I'm going to do one quick chassidus question because it's, and I say quick is because time is short. So there was a chassidus question. 
And there were some other things I, go, I was going to uh, address. You know, let me just address... Okay. I'll just say this. Someone wrote this question, before I get to the this question, just to show you the variety of questions I receive. Would it be okay to name our children Donald? Would it be okay if we named our children Donald because Trump was good to the Jews? Just like we adapted the name Alexander after Alexander the Great and became a Hebrew name. There you go. How does one respond to such a question? You can name your children any way you want to name the name. I mean, first of all, a child needs a Hebrew name, so I would look to a Hebrew name. To make Donald Trump like Alexander the Great, I don't know. I would not do that. <laughs> doesn't make sense to me. There were presidents that were very good for the Jews, um, and uh, we start naming people after someone who's good to the Jews. So I don't know if I'd go there. I don't want to really even respond to that. I think you should talk to your mashpia, to your spouse, and discuss it. And uh, I would try to stick to a Hebrew name. And, uh, and that's what I would do if I were naming a child. I wouldn't go to names like Donald or, for that matter, uh, Joe or uh, Obama or uh, Bill or uh, George or George W., etc., or Ronald, as in Ronald Reagan. That's my comment. Okay, regarding, let's move over to Chassidus' question. Here's the Chassidus' question for this week. It's a Hanukkah-related question. Okay. I have to find it. Buried here between all this stuff. Okay. There we go. Derech mitzvisecha. And Hanukkah. There's a mitzvah near Hanukkah, Tzemach Tzedek, discusses how Chochmist Dima is revealed in Malchus via the Midas, through Keser from above, and by Zoyed Ampin raising up to Midas and Keser. And that's where we make Baruch HaShosa Nisim Lavesenu, Dafka Hanukkah, not Pesach, and other Yom Tevin. My question is, how can we apply this to the Neshama? Can we learn from this how to access the subconscious mind and reveal new Kreches and bring it into action? Malchus of the human being. Thank you. So briefly, it's a very Kabbalistic and dense Maimer Ne'er Hanukkah. It's not usually learned in yeshiva for that reason. To put it in more uh, palatable terms, basically he discusses the difference between Hanukkah, and Purim for that matter, but Hanukkah will focus on, and the other Yom Tevim, like Pesach. That in Priyetz Chaim, the the Arizal, distinguishes their level of Gili that comes in these days. Also, why don't we make Baruch Shosanisim on Pesach, like we do on, uh, on Hanukkah? So he distinguishes two levels. First of all, Pesach, of course, is a yont of Minadar Aisa. Hanukkah is the Rabbonon, as he brings right in the beginning of the Maimah. And Pesach was essentially the freedom from, from slavery to freedom. It, he says it was more about a Gashmiz saving the Jews from slavery. Obviously, it had Ruchni's impact. Hanukkah was not saving them by Gashmis. It was more about Das, he says, a mocham over religion, over faith. The Yavonim, the Greeks, wanted to defile, as I mentioned earlier, the sanctity of Yiddishkeit. He says Purim is also that way. The Levush speaks about Guf and Neshama with Purim and Hanukkah, but let's not go into that right now. Hanukkah was over Das. So on one hand, in a revealed way, Pesach was a much greater redemption. It was a redemption of the Jewish people from such a long gullus and became the yesod of the entire nation of the Jewish people, followed later by Matan Teda and so on. Hanukkah does not have that intensity. But on the other hand, in Echus, 
In qualities, Hanukkah did something that reaches all the way into the purest part of what a Jew is, their connection to God. Though Mitzrayim affected the Jewish, the Jews, but they had their amuna. Hanukkah was a challenge of the amuna, the pure, which is which is what you're calling subconscious. Let's call it superconscious. In Kesser and Chach and so on. So Hanukkah draws down from a much deeper place in that sense, because it's about reinvigorating and reinforcing and reconnecting our connection to God. That's what Hanukkah is about, and bringing that down into our lives down below. So yes, the practical application of that is that Hanukkah revives and renews our connection, Pach Shemen, within our hearts and souls, that pure olive oil that connects us, pure Amunah Pshuta. The connection to the mitzvahs of God, bringing godliness into the world. Now, of course, this comes after Mitzrayim, after the Shal Shalagolim, which is Minatayr uh, that we have, Pesach, Shavuos, and Sukkot. So now, Hanukkah introduces another dimension, and that's why we celebrate it through light. Because light, Oyer, is like Eirein Sof, is Megala, the highest levels of divine revelation. And that's a good way to conclude this program. My Life Chassidus Applied, special Hanukkah edition, episode 335. We're here every Sunday from 8 to 9 p.m. Everyone have a very happy Hanukkah. Celebrate well. A simchadikah Hanukkah. A healthy Hanukkah. And may the light of Hanukkah continue to shine in your life, in the life of your family, the life of our communities. And to lead us straight to Neder Shalziyim, where we, re, we will rebuild and rededicate the Beis Hamikdash Ashlishi with the Meneda, the Meneda in the Beis Hamikdash, and the Gula Hamitis Vashlema should all go immediately from Chanuk into the Gula. Everyone, be well. Afrelech and Chanuk. This program is brought to you by My Life Chassidus Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at ChassidusApplied.com/donate.